Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura. And I'm Amity. Let's go. So last week, we ended with chapter nine of The Secret Garden. She had just kind of noticed the green sprouts coming out of the ground that maybe the garden was still alive. She had noticed a plant that looked like onions. They were so she was asking around. And then she got the great idea to get a spade. Yeah. And then Martha is going to suggest talking to Dickon about it and write a note to him. She also does notice a strange sound in the house again. And I believe that was the second time, right? Yeah. And Martha again has tried to brush it off. We sort of ended last time going, how did they ever think that they were going to keep this a secret forever? I don't think that they had a long-term plan. So that's kind of where we are as we jump into the next section. Okay. So now we're going to move on to chapter 10. And the beginning of this one is when Mary actually dubs the garden, the secret garden, because she's found it now. And she's just going to refer to it as the secret garden. We learn a little bit more about sort of her routine, like she's going outside every day and running and skipping and um, using the jump rope, working super hard in the garden. And as a result, she's becoming a lot more healthy and just more approachable. She starts to develop a friendship, I want to say, with Ben Weatherstaff. And it talks in there and it's so cute about how he is really tickled about it because he mentions that he is a bachelor. And he's just kind of this crusty old guy that's just grumpy. But somehow she touches his heart. He loves that she is willing to put up with his elderly company, as he says. And so they talk about gardening. They talk about the robin. They kind of talk to the robin. The thing is, too, that I really love in this evolution of Mary is that she has become so curious and she's also so passionate about the garden. And she realizes that Ben is a wealth of knowledge for gardening. And so she starts picking his brain and finding out what a plant looks like if it's actually dead or if it still has a chance to come back alive, you know, what to do for roses and things like that. Do you get the idea that he had tended the secret garden before? Yes, I really think so because he kind of alludes to that because he says that he did work for Mrs. Craven. He doesn't name her, but he says, I used to work for a young lady who loved roses and basically she taught me about them. He says in there, and I should have written down the quote exactly, but basically there's this garden that was shut up after she died, but I would go in there every once in a while and prune the roses and try to keep it up. And then later he talks about how he couldn't because his rheumatism was so bad and his knees were bad and things like that. So he couldn't do it for the past little while. So yes, I think that he has been in there. With all of Mary's questioning, Ben becomes a little bit suspicious and is like, why are you, you know, he's been so friendly and like answering all of her questions. And all of a sudden you've got a lot to say, like, what's going on? Just go, go play, you know, just got grumpy. So she was just like, well, I literally have nothing and no one. So that's, that's the only reason why I'm curious. Like I, I want to pretend to have a garden type thing, but she runs along her way. And I love, well, she's thinking this, that queer as it was, here was another person whom she liked in spite of his crossness. She liked old Ben Weatherstaff. 
Yes, she did like him. I think that there's a lot of herself that she can see in him, but she doesn't know that. She just knows that they kind of relate on this elemental sort of grumpiness level. (laughs) But at the same time, they're both lonely and he has a good heart. So she's drawn to him. Yeah, she's collecting people slowly that she likes. She is. I love, yeah, I love that word collecting because she is, because every once in a while she'll just stop and list, okay, I like this person and I like that person and I like that person. And now I like Ben Weatherstaff. So there's another person. She talks to him less like a servant now. They either Mm -hmm. alluded to that in the text or I can't, I'm sure that's, that wasn't my own idea, but yeah, that she's talking to him more like a friend, realizing that he has a wealth of knowledge that she can use. Yeah. And so she's really waking up to the worth of other people, which is huge for a person, huge for a kid to realize that the world doesn't revolve around them and other people have value and things to offer. And especially an elderly person. In this same chapter, we finally get to meet Dickon. And as we mentioned, we're on chapter 10 and we've been talking about Dickon for a long time, but now she finally gets to meet him because He responded to the letter and he brought her little tools and seeds from the village. She hears a noise. It sounds like some music. And so she follows the music and she sees him. She, so I wanted to give this direct quote. It says a boy was sitting under a tree with his back against it, playing on a rough wooden pipe. He was a funny looking boy about 12. He looked very clean and his nose turned up and his cheeks were as red as poppies and never had Mistress Mary seen such round and such blue eyes in any boy's face. Not only that, but there's also all these little animals approaching him and crawling all over him and on his shoulder. They want to hear the music on his pipe. And I said it before, but he really reminds me of, it's like she's trying to create him as this little wood sprite, this little magical fairy that charms people and animals. I think she does a really good job of painting him. So you have this picture of him in your mind. I don't know. I picture him like wearing dark clothes and he's got all these animals following him around. Just- I know. It kind of makes you think of Snow White, only like only yeah. he's a little boy. Yeah. So. Yeah. And not, he doesn't sing. No. Or maybe he does. I don't know. But yeah. He plays his, he plays a little right. wood pipe. Yeah. And he tells her that the Robin likes her mm-hmm. at the, during this scene um, and brings her the gardening tools. And then she tells him about the secret garden. Yeah, she does. He's somebody that I think he inspires confidence because he is so confident. And what I really like that this description of him is like, he's extremely poor. His clothes are very raggedy, but I love how it says it sounded as if he liked her and was not the least afraid she would not like him. Though he was only a common moor boy in patched clothes and with a funny face and a rough, rusty red head. But that doesn't matter to him because he's also very self-aware and he knows how capable he is. He knows that he is trustworthy and that he's smart and intelligent and hardworking and that he, again, is just so capable. And so he has all the confidence in the world. And I remember reading a phrase a couple years ago. It was just so simple. It just says competence breeds confidence where he is just excellent at so many things and also has an, an amazing home life. He knows he's loved. So he's so confident and he inspires that in Mary to where she's like, I want to tell you about this. And can you keep a secret? And he's like, well, I keep secrets of all the birds and the foxes and the rabbits. So I can keep your secret. So she tells him about the garden. Yeah, I love that. He just knows who he is and is comfortable with it. And it's like catching, not what's the word. She picked contagious. up on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that word. Yeah. 
Okay, so then moving on to chapter 11, we find out that Dickon actually, he had known about the secret garden. So it's sort of like all of these secrets at Misslethwaite Manor, kind of like we talked about before, they're big secrets for Mary, but everybody else knows about them. They just haven't necessarily seen them. He knows about the secret garden. He knows about Colin. He's just never seen any of them. So Mary's sort of the one who comes in and like opens up all these secrets to everybody, really. She's the first one to be curious enough to try to find it. Yeah. And daring enough and really in a position to be able to do it because like if, if Dickon had done it, he probably would have gotten in really big trouble. Yeah. And it kind of probably does come back to like, she had nothing else to do and no one else who cared about her or for her to care about. And so she pursued these, these little things and they were life-changing. So they go into the garden. Of course, Dickon knows everything about everything. And so he goes around and is able to show her the different plants that have potential to grow and some that there are some that are completely dead, but he looks at some of the branches of the rose bushes and he's like, oh, this one is just as wick as you or me. And she learns that wick means that it's alive. And so there's a little Yorkshire language for you. They go around and he's like, oh, somebody's been working in here. And he notes going back to when we were talking about Ben Weatherstaff, he's like, it looks like somebody's been in here in the past couple of years because these would be way more overgrown if there'd been nobody. So that's another arrow pointing towards Ben Weatherstaff. I mean, you have to think there was more than one key to the garden. Right. So you would think that probably the head gardener would have something and maybe Ben Weatherstaff had access to that. They just go around, they talk about the garden. And, you know, since this is such a nature oriented book, and Dickon, we know, is like the nature fairy. There's this thing that he says in here because Mary talks about how she loves the smell of earth that's been turned up. And I don't know any sane person who doesn't. Like for me, and maybe you're the same way. I don't know. I'm not even a good gardener, but it gets to be springtime and you go to like Lowe's or Home Depot or somewhere and they've got all their seeds and soil and you kind of smell that and you get that feeling. You're like, I'm going to plant everything. <laughs> It just like brings you so much joy and the smell of the earth turned up. It is beautiful. And so Dickens says, there's not as nice as the smell of good clean earth, except the smell of fresh grown things. When the rain falls on them, I get out on the more many a day when it's raining and I lie under a bush and listen to the soft swish of drops on the heather. And I just sniff and sniff my nose end fair quivers like a rabbit's mother says. And I love that. And I think that everybody needs to spend some time out just smelling nature. I mean, I notice, you know, different smells in different seasons, right? So the spring yes. has a specific smell. And to me, fall has a specific smell. That's probably about it for me. But yeah, I just love, I'm not good also with plants. <laughs> I will kill them. My husband is really good at automating everything at our house that can be automated. And so the plants just get watered. Or if it was up to me, they would be dead. I only feed things that cry, especially depending on the season of life you're in. I, I often will on my runs or walks or whatever, I'll see these houses with like immaculate landscaping and I go, okay, either they have no children or they've hired a landscaper and that may be too simplistic. And maybe there's people out there who are just amazing at getting their kids out and helping, or they just do it themselves. But I just don't know how you can. I just, but I admire people that do. I just, the people that are good at growing things, it's just, it's a skill that I wish I had and I admire in others. And it's funny when you find out people that do have that skill, like sometimes I think it's surprising, you know, 
I mean, like I found out my uncle is really good at growing things. And I'm like, that just surprises me. It's not somebody, you know, that I thought, anyway, it, it's just fun. I think it really fun. is. And it kind of, I think that it, it's a gift, like so many things and we can all get better at it. It's something that I'm sure if we learn and practice, anyone can get better at it. But I, I definitely think there's a lot of people that have a propensity for it, sort of have a sense like a gift. Oh, it's like, yeah. you think, well, why does so-and-so have a green thumb, right? What yeah. is that even, what do you need to have that? I don't, I think it's a sense, <laughs> right? They know what to do. It's like a, yeah. A, what's the word? Like an intuition about it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. My mother-in-law is another one that is, grows amazing things and it's not me, <laughs> but I wish. We're just trying to be good at other things. <laughs> and speaking of that though, like the immaculate landscaping, Dickon and Mary decide that First of all, they're going to work in this garden a lot and they decide that they don't want it to be too tidy. Like they don't want it to be that just everything's perfectly trimmed and and everything. They said they want it to look natural and to let things run wild so that it's a little more um, accessible, I guess. This reminds me of when you're a little kid and you get excited about a project that you do through play, right? I, I remember being young and, you know, setting, I don't know, setting up a little house in the backyard, like or, you know, if you have a tree house, it's just cute that they're excited about it. They're, they have this project, like it gives them purpose and something to do and, and something to bond them together. It's great. Yeah, it really is. You saying that makes me think about, yeah, like when I was a little kid, we had this vacant lot right next door and we would get up early and just go out and dig holes. And it was just because we would like make forts out of these things and pretend that we were soldiers. I don't know. We had all kinds of things that we pretended, but there was just like this massive empty lot, but it was on a hill. So there's so much you can do with that. And there's like cactus and or cacti and sagebrush and all these things and tons of rocks. And so we just let our imagination run wild and it all kinds of things out there. But it was one of those things that like literally got us out of bed in the morning because yeah. we were so excited to go out. And yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> we're sad children, but anyway. my dad built a loft in one of our bedrooms. So it was up by the ceiling and we had ceiling heat. We didn't really understand that we had ceiling heat. And mm-hmm. so my friend and I would think that the attic was on fire. And so we would start moving everything out of our bedroom. I mean, I'm sure we didn't know. We didn't really think the attic was on fire, but I bet my mom wanted to kill us. <laughs> like, Stop. <laughs> the attic is not on fire. <laughs> Heat is on. <laughs> Stop moving all of our stuff. <laughs> I'm glad you feel like you have a purpose, but <laughs> wrong purpose. That's right. <laughs> The very last part of that chapter, so that, and then we'll move on to that. You know, Mary says, you know, can you keep the secret? And Dickens says, if thou was a missile thrush and showed me where thy nest was, does thou think I'd tell anyone? Not me. Thou art as safe as a missile thrush. It's hard to read the Yorkshire accent. <laughs> like all the... He's just such a trustworthy boy. So in chapter 12, Mary tells Martha that she thinks Dickens is beautiful. Of course, not in an actual like aesthetic way. His, his looks are not beautiful, but he is, he's a truly beautiful person. And Mary has evolved to the point that she actually does recognize it and sees the incredible value and beauty in this young boy. Also in this chapter, it's kind of a big deal because Mr. Craven has been traveling and he's, 
He's finally back. He wants to see Mary. And Mrs. Medlock is all a flutter and she's all nervous about it. She wants to make sure that uh, Mary looks perfect and everything. And she brings her to Mr. Craven's office. And we find out that he actually does have a soft side. When she first sees him, she's like, oh, you know, she's thinking he's going to be like this hunchback monster guy. And he does have a hunchback, but she's like, he actually is, would be quite handsome if he didn't look so sad and sour, you know? But then, like I said, he has sort of a soft spot and he's like, does care for her and care about the fact that she's there. He just has no idea what to do with her or about her. And so we find out the the entire reason that he's even having this interview with her is because Mrs. Sowerby had the guts to stop him on the moor to be like, Hey, let's talk about that girl that's in your house right now. (laughs) About what you should, what you're doing with her. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And he Um, agrees with her, right? He's like, I think it would be good for her to be out and breathing fresh air and running around freedom. Because Mrs. Sorby is just like, you know, don't worry about giving her governess yet. Just let her play outdoors. She needs fresh air and freedom. Yeah. Like you said, after he sees Mary, he's like, yeah, I think that's exactly what she needs. But this part is really important because he asks if there's anything that Mary wants. And he's thinking books or toys or dolls or something like that. And she decides to ask if she can have a bit of earth so she can plant a garden. Of course, she's not specific as to where that bit of earth is. But where earlier in the book, we're told that she's somebody who's never respected authority and never thought she needed to ask for anything. She actually is like, I'm going to ask for this so that basically she can calm her conscience. She actually has a conscience. (laughs) Without being specific. Without being too specific. And he says, you can have anything you can find. Yeah. And so she, she takes that as her permission and she's like, all right, we're good. Mr. Craven just gives Mrs. Medlock some instruction that way and says, you know, kind of make sure she eats healthy, but that you kind of leave her alone and let, let her do what she wants. So she's super happy. She runs back to the garden and she sees that Dickon is gone, but he's left a note. And on the note, there's a little picture of a missile thrush. And that takes us right into the next chapter. One other thing I like is that Mr. Craven mentions, this reminds me of somebody. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. She reminds him of his wife. Exactly. So we go into chapter 13 and this is where we finally meet Colin. Yes. (laughs) I like it. We're halfway through the book and we're finally meeting him. Mary goes to sleep and she's thinking about Dickon, right? I think she's, he's on her mind all the time. She's just like, tomorrow I hope I can see him. And then when she wakes up in the middle of the night, it's upsetting because it's raining. I guess when it's raining, they can't go out. She doesn't want to go out. And, and I think it's probably scary, wind and rain. And so she's up awake, up awake in the middle of the night and she hears a young person crying. Is this like the third time, maybe? Third or fourth? I think so. Yeah, she decides, I'm going to go find out who this is because I know it's somebody in the house. So she finds Colin and they start talking and they're both surprised by each other. And she immediately thinks he's spoiled. She can tell right away that he gets whatever he wants. And the, the funny thing I think about this is that she's the same way and they don't see it in each other or she doesn't see it in herself like she sees it in him. Anyway, so she tells him about the garden. And then I think she regrets mentioning it. She, I don't know. I was thinking this as I was reading it. Like, do you ever like, you you say something and then later you start thinking, you might come home and be going to bed that night and think, I probably shouldn't have said that. Like, or less. Oh my gosh. Like all the time. And you start <laughs> like, 
spilled out. And then she's like, uh, whoops, I probably shouldn't have mentioned the garden. But she tells him about the garden. And then I think she kind of backtracks. She doesn't tell him she's found it, right? Right. Yeah. He, she doesn't reveal that much. She just tells him that there is a secret garden. Yeah. And yeah. then then she's like, oh, I'm going to stop right here. And then he shows her a picture of his mom, of the painting of his mom that's up on the wall. It's covered because he doesn't like to look at it. It's very funny. I mean, a lot of it is they have the same eyes, but his eyes are the same, but sad and sickly. And so it's upsetting for him to look at her and upsetting for his father to look at him. And then they they both find out that both of them know Martha. So. Yeah. And that's what's so interesting is that like neither of them have been told about each other, you know, and obviously we've been following Mary all this time. So we know that she didn't know about Colin, but Colin had also never been told that Mary was there. He had no idea that there was this other child in the house. Like how bizarre is that? Right. But um, yeah. yeah and, the, and to find out that they were like working, I mean, that Martha has been in and out of her room and has never mentioned him denied when she says I hear him and she's like oh no you don't hear anything but the whole time it's crazy and then I love the ending of this chapter where Mary sits with him stroking his hand and singing like songs that she'd learned in India while he falls asleep and if you like sort of step back and sort of imagine yourself looking into this room it's really very sweet and tender because you would see these two sad and very broken children that have They've just endured so much sadness. Like one of the reasons Colin wants his mother's picture covered up is because first of all, he doesn't have his mother in his life. She's dead. He doesn't want her picture to be watching him die. It's so sad. We've got these two broken children, but one of them is learning and growing. And because of the brokenness and the sadness that she's experienced, she's able to start taking and mending this other little broken soul. It's just so sweet and tender. And I just, anyway, I just love it. We're looking at like the beginning of his journey. Yes. I just heard stroking his hand while he fell asleep. I mean, that's just so sweet. And she really takes on kind of like a motherly role with him in I'll fix him. I'll do, you know, all along. So this is just the, the first step. I loved chapter 14. The title of it is a young Raja. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to read really quick. I can find it. The story of the Raja. Do you mm-hmm. remember the story? How I think he has diamonds all over him. My book has Roman numerals for the chapter heading. <laughs> so, oh, I think mine does. I think mine does too. So the Raja, she tells him that she's thinking about two things. And the first thing is he has diamonds all over him. And like he can ask anybody to do anything or something like that. Does that sound? Yeah. Fun? And it's. If I remember right, she she remembers seeing this young Raja being carried through the streets, you know, on a litter by servants, if I'm remembering that right, because I'm looking through and I can't find the exact place because she mentions the Raja because she's like, Colin reminds me of that. Okay, go ahead. Once in India, I saw a boy who was a Raja. He had rubies and emeralds and diamonds stuck all over him. He spoke to his people just as you spoke to Martha. Everybody had to do everything he told them in a minute. I think they would have been killed if they hadn't. And then he says, I shall make you tell me about Raja's presently. But first, tell me what the second thing is. And so then the second thing is how different Colin is from Dickens. I I think the story of the Raja is really interesting because it keeps coming back. They keep mentioning it again in later chapters. And so I thought that would be an interesting thing to visit later. Like why they're mentioning it again. 
but yeah, how different they are. So we've got Dickon, who's free and healthy and smart. And then you have Colin, who's thinks he's going to die, is stuck in bed, you know, has no experience outside. Yeah. And it's an amazing comparison and contrast because Dickon, like you say, he's intelligent. He is capable. He's He can take care of himself. He's uh, super self-reliant. He can take care of animals. He can take care of plants. He can do anything. And yet he's so humble and he's so kind and he loves everyone and everyone loves him. And then you have the grandness, which is the word that they often use to refer to Colin, of this young kid who literally can't do anything. He can't even sit up in bed by himself. And yet everyone does exactly what he says. He has this attitude that, well, guess what? Anything that I say goes. He thinks of himself as just being the best of the best. He says that so many times. Well, they have to do whatever I say. In the beginning of this chapter, so Mary is telling Martha that she found Colin. Mm -hmm. And Martha is worried that she's going to get in trouble. Um, And she says, the world's coming to an end. Coming to an end. I'm not good with the Yorkshire accent. but And then Colin tells Martha that he wants Mary to come see her. And they want to keep it a secret because everything is a secret. It's funny. Everything's a secret, but yeah, everybody knows everything. <laughs> That's such a good point. And poor Martha. Like, poor Keeping lady. everyone's secrets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and worried that she's going to get in trouble. And anyways, and he says that again, they have to do whatever I want. And you're not going to get in trouble because I told you to do it. I told you to bring Mary to me. And so you have to. They talk about the Raja and then how different Colin and Dickon are are from each other. Mary tells Colin about Dickon. And then Mrs. Medlock and Dr. Craven find Mary in Colin's room. I liked this scene. I thought it was really interesting. You kind of see that Dr. Craven is upset that Colin is doing better. And they had gone in to see him earlier and realized he was doing better, but didn't realize why, because they didn't. Mary had been in there. Mary talks to Colin about Dickon. She talks to him about the Raja, but then she starts talking about Dickon. And I love this quote. says, it was the best thing she could have said. It's probably so healthy for Colin. She says, to talk about Dickon meant to talk about the moor and about the cottage and the 14 people who lived in it on 16 shillings a week and the children who got fat on the moor grass like wild ponies and about Dickon's mother and the skipping rope and the moor with the sun on it and about pale green points sticking up out of the black sod. And it was all so alive that Mary talked more than she'd ever talked before. And Colin both talked and listened as he had never done either before. And they both began to laugh over nothings as children will when they are happy together. And they laughed. So in the end, they were making as much noise as if they had been two ordinary, healthy, natural 10-year-old creatures instead of a hard little unloving girl and a sickly boy who believed he was going to die. I love this quote so much because it really, there's a lot we can talk about. What I pulled from it specifically was that they're talking about the sowerbees and the moor and the gardens and all these outside things are very similar to how it would be if other children, my children, for instance, are talking about princesses and other foreign things that they don't really know much about except what they read about in books. But there's a lot of imagination that goes into it. And so it can keep them entertained for hours because they can keep talking about it and imagining and getting lost in this sort of foreign and fantastical world, which is super healthy for their brains and their imaginations and overall well-being. It shows how sheltered they were. This world is just right outside their house. 
Mm-hmm. They just were so protected and so not protected, but I don't know, squashed into these roles as as children. They're starting to become more like real children than act more like real children. I love it. Okay, in chapter 15, everybody in the house is very happy that Mary has found Colin because now Colin is behaving (laughs) better. He's been happier. He's not throwing temper tantrums anymore, or at least since they've become friends. I mean, everybody in the house is like, they haven't. And they'll call on her come in and take care of this because we don't know what to do later on in the book. It's, it's, it's very funny. I love this. Mary goes out into the garden and she says she dresses herself in like five minutes. I, I loved it. I loved it. She knows how to dress herself. Yes, I'm getting good at this. I'm going out and she's hoping that Dickens going to be out there and she finds him. And then they talk about Colin and she tells him about finding Colin in the night. And then she finds out that they already knew about him. Yeah. Everybody is really good at keeping secret in this situation. They actually are. And like you said, there's all these secrets, but everybody knows about them. So, right. But yeah, they, it's like, we just have to keep it from this one person. We're not telling her. So she finds out that they already knew and that they hadn't wanted Mary to know about him. And we learn why Mr. Craven doesn't like to see Colin. It's interesting. He'll go and visit him when he's asleep, but he doesn't like to see him when he's awake because his eyes look like his mother's. I love this quote. But in his miserable bit of a face, he has beautiful eyes, but he's so ugly. So, and which is interesting because probably because he's sad and they're telling him he's going to die and they don't realize they're creating this. Totally creating this monster. He thinks he's going to die. He thinks nobody really likes him. He knows nobody really likes him. You know, he has all this power over them, but he knows nobody likes him. And that's rough for a 10 year old. His dad doesn't want to spend any time with him. He thinks a lump is growing on his back. And he's never been outside. He says he's gone to the beach a couple of times. But other than that, like he just stays in his bed. And when he goes outside, wears him out and he can't, he doesn't like it. He doesn't like it when people look at him. He doesn't like it when people talk about him. You know, that's one of the rules in the house. But yeah, it reminds me of like a spoiled child, right? You're upset that you have a spoiled child, but yet you did it. You created this situation. It's on you. Yeah, exactly. I I take full responsibility. (laughs) Um, So Mary and Colin talk about his fear of becoming a hunchback. And they say often when he's talking to him that he'll be laying on his side. Like he doesn't even want to sit up because he's afraid of finding a lump or creating a hunchback, which is funny because I don't know if it was that way in these times, but like, I don't think we ever think, say your father has something. We don't just automatically assume that the children are going to have it too. Yeah, not necessarily. Unless it's something that's just like so well known that it's a genetic disorder. But even then you're right. Like we know enough about genes to know that there's still only a chance. Yes. That it'll be like, passed it's, down. It's, he has it. It's destiny. He's going to be a hunchback like his dad. And they just think that's interesting. So they talk about his fear of becoming a hunchback. She says, do you think bringing him out to the garden will help him focus on other things rather than this gloomy destiny that he's going to be sick and die and be a hunchback which is funny because his dad's not dead why do they think he's going to die that's something that yeah i i wanted to talk about and kind of in 16 it gets into it a little bit more but yeah so first of all why is he so afraid of the lump on his on his back because his dad's alive his dad got married his dad travels it didn't stop him and so why is he so terrified of that? Why is his father so ashamed of him and the possibility that he might have a lump on his back? 
because that's really the impression we get. And it's like, I guess my thought is his father would only be sad about it because he'd be like, well, it's because of me that he has the lump. But he's surviving. So I just didn't get that. Would bringing him out into the garden help him focus on other things? And then Mary just loves to hear Dickon talk to the animals. And I, I pulled out this quote. I loved it. He made one of his low whistling calls and the robin turned his head and looked at him inquiringly, still holding his twig. Dickon spoke to him as Ben Weatherstaff did, but Dickon's tone was one of friendly advice. So he has this like different way of talking to the animals mm-hmm. than even Ben Weatherstaff, who talks a little bit to the robin at least. Yeah. And he's out there and he appreciates nature and loves it. But Dickon just has a whole other level of love and understanding. Mary had been out in the garden with Dickon and they had beautiful conversations and, and talked about how they thought Colin should be out there. And then right into the next chapter, Mary goes back in and Martha tells her that Colin is super upset because Mary didn't come to see him. Instead, she went out to the garden. So Mary charges in there and they get into quite the row. This is when you realize she is a spoiled, headstrong child who's always had her way. And same with him. The difference is that she's experienced enough growth that she's not going to put up with that. And she's actually going to try to sort of bring him up to the low level that she's at, but she's going to try to bring him up. So they just like go at it. The thing that about it is that to the two of them, to Mary and Colin, it probably seems like just this horrible, like cat fight. His nurse is standing outside the door. I think there's a couple of other servants and they're standing outside the door, just listening and laughing because they know that that's exactly what Colin needs. He needs somebody who's not afraid to tell him what's what, and none of them can do it. And so they know that she will. And in fact, so it says the truth was that he had never had a fight with anyone like himself in his life. And upon the whole, it was rather good for him, though neither he nor Mary knew anything about that. (laughs) So I really love that. And I mean, that's kind of the majority of what happens in the chapter. Mary's like, I'm never going to come here again, you know, but she softens by the end of the chapter. And she's like, well, maybe I will go back. Maybe I'll talk to him. It's sooner than she thinks because that very night, I don't remember. Is it Martha who comes? It's one of the servants who comes and wakes Mary up. Well, I think Mary's awake anyway, but they come and get her and they're like, we need you to come and, and calm down Colin. He's, he's in one of his hysterics. I love this too. Sorry, I do lots of quotes. There's just so many good things in here. It says it was not until afterward that Mary realized that the thing had been funny as well as dreadful, that it was funny that all the grownups were so frightened that they came to a little girl just because they guessed she was almost as bad as Colin himself. I have that quote written down here. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. But the key word there is almost. She's grown enough that she can still pull him out and yep. not stoop completely to his level. And maybe it's because she's like him that she's yeah. able to reach him. Yeah, she understands the emotions and the anger and everything that he's feeling and and why he's being contrary because she's contrary too. And then here's the really interesting thing, very enlightening. She goes to him, she gets him to calm down in a very sassy way and wants to find out why he's crying. And he's like, I'm crying because I know the lump on my back is growing. And Mary's like, well, can I see? And so the nurse shows her and she's like, there is nothing wrong with your back. Nothing. And here's what the, this part is really enlightening, eye-opening, whatever. The nurse says, I didn't know that he thought he had a lump on his spine. His back is weak because he won't try to sit up. I could have told him there was no lump there. (laughs) Hello. Hello. You know, the importance of just like seeking to understand. 
just <laughs> listening. Everybody could have been saved so much torment if they'd found out what is his fear. His fear is that he's going to have a lump on his back or just be a hunchback. Instead, they were just treating all these symptoms instead of really finding out what the deeper problem was. I liked this quote too about when they're talking about like, if he hadn't laid here for days and months and years, let's see, it says, if he had childish companions and had not lain on his back in this huge closed house, breathing an atmosphere heavy with fears of people who were most of them ignorant and tired of him, he would have found out that most of his fight and illness was created by himself and his aches and weariness for hours and days and months and years. And now that an angry, unsympathetic little girl insisted obstinately that he was not as ill as he thought he was, he actually felt as if she might be speaking the truth. That digs into so many truths as well. It makes me think of a couple of things. First of all, as I was reading this again, I was thinking about my grandma had a cousin who was a lot like Colin. She did actually have some health issues, but her parents were so paranoid that they just carried her everywhere. They didn't get her to learn how to walk. She talked. She never learned how to walk. So she grew to be an old woman and was convinced that she had all these health problems. And like I said, she did have some, but they weren't so severe that she could never learn to walk and could never learn to like function normally. And so what a very sad life that she ended up living. Like, I think she was in the, a nursing home from the time she was just maybe in her twenties. Oh, wow. So, and, and she lived to be quite old. So her parents were convinced and she was convinced that she was an invalid and could do no better than that. And it also like right along those lines, I was listening to a psychologist the other day. He was talking about his daughter who they found out had quite a few health problems as well. And he was like, we needed to be honest with her about the health problems with, that she had without making her think, and I'm totally paraphrasing, making her think that these would limit her life. What can she do in spite of all these? And he's like, people can usually do a lot more than they think they can. But when they hear, oh, I've got this health problem, they immediately go, well, so I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. And he's like, no, they actually can do most of those things. You go until you can't, you literally can't go anymore because we're capable of a lot more than we actually think. So you don't let health problems stand in the way until they, they really do. I mean, because sometimes they really do shut you down for sure. Right. But I think a lot of times we limit ourselves more than we actually need to. Yes. How much of, how much of it is our brains telling us you can't. Exactly. I listened to a couple of podcasts recently about people who had health challenges. One was a man who has one arm mm -hmm. and is actually a football coach, like an assistant football coach for an NFL team. And I can't remember which one. I think it's in Kansas city. Mm -hmm. He injured himself, fell off the back of a truck at four years old, injured his arm. And then as a teenager decided to have his arm amputated because he couldn't use it. And so it just kept like getting broken or dislocated. He could feel pain in it, but he couldn't use it. And so it was just in his way. The fact that he'd never played football and he's a football coach. That was kind of interesting. And then the other That's one amazing. was one of the, I listened to what a podcast about one of the Osmond's grandsons who's deaf. And it was very interesting. Like he had, you know, the two oldest boys in the Osmond family. They are deaf. Yeah. And it was hereditary. And the, the parents were told not to have more children, but they had seven more children that were all fine. But then this grandson ended up being deaf also. And it was just interesting to listen to people who have disabilities and talk about how they overcame it. And like they do so much more than people might be able to think that they 
they could do. Yeah. And I want to insert the story because it made me think of it. So I have a cousin who's just, he's like a year younger than me. And when he was just a little guy, he grew up on a ranch. And when I say a little guy, I think he was like five. He put his arm into some type of machinery. He was trying to help his dad with something. And this is a bad story because I can't remember the names of everything, but he put his arm into some kind of machinery and it just just like ate his arm. There he is at five or six years old and he had to have his arm amputated up, but, and it was his right arm. So, and, and he was right-handed. And so that was his dominant hand, but he has not let it stop him at all. In fact, what he does for a living is he breaks horses. <laughs> yeah. With one, with one arm and like, and what he has on the right side, like he, he makes it function for him, but he writes and he, he works and he does everything. He's amazing. He has a, a little family, several kids, such an incredible example of like not letting that disability stop him. And especially the line of work that he went into, like I said, his family, they were ranchers. They are ranchers. That's what he does. He breaks horses. One arm. So it's yeah. very impressive. It's amazing. And like this, uh, the Osmond boy, his name's Justin Osmond. He actually plays a bunch of instruments. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. Yeah. You can tell when he talks that he is yeah. deaf, but he can, he plays instruments and he listed several of them. Oh, that's amazing. So chapter 18, I love the first part of it. Okay. So this is the day after the big meltdown, the big tantrum and the hysterics and Mary sleeps late and Martha comes and talks to her. And this is what she says. Mother says, as the two worst things as can happen to a child is never to have his own way or always to have it. She doesn't know which is the worst. So I kind of wanted to talk about that. Like, why would that be that the two worst things are that either a child would never have his own way or they always have it? And what kind of damage would that cause? I mean, I've always thought about, obviously it's bad for them to always have their own way. But to never have their own way? The the thought that came to me was if they never have their own way, they never learn to trust their own judgment. You know, it's like somebody else is always going to know better. So I can make a decision, but it's, it's always going to be wrong. So never learn to stand up for themselves. Yeah. And, or, and have confidence in their decisions maybe. Yeah. Or even feel loved or important. Yeah. Yeah. Like your sense of self would be just nothing. Yeah. Like, why am I even here? I can't make any decisions. They'd probably always find themselves in extremely toxic and awful relationships and very abusive relationships because they're always going to figure, well, somebody else knows better than me. Yeah. I'll have to think if you know anybody like that. I think not having self-confidence could be a lot of people's problem. Yeah. Like you said, getting into bad relationships or, or relationships where the other person is controlling you. That reminds me of sister wives, which is, I'm going to have People are going to find out that I will bring up sister wives whenever I can. I love it. I think I've seen some of those women think one is Christine, who is leaving the family. She finally Mm -hmm. figured out like, wait, I don't want this. It's just really interesting. She's like finding her self-confidence and sticking up for herself and saying, I thought it had to be like this. And now I realized it it doesn't have to be like this. I can do what I want. Well, that's really interesting because I like years ago, I did watch, I think one of the first episodes or something that was a long time ago, but I remember them interviewing each of the women of the, the wives. And they said that they would not want a man to themselves. Like they couldn't even imagine that, that that was really kind of scary to them. 
And I thought that was really interesting and kind of sad. And I thought, man, what had to happen in your brain and in your upbringing for you to go, yeah, this is the only way. It'd be scary to have a man all to like to just be you and him. Why would that be scary? And this is like they're like, this is always what I've wanted. This is yeah. And families like that may be situations where the kids don't ever get their way. And that's very. I think that yeah. that's very possible. I hate to like project anything, but that is very possible. Yeah. Because we know that in in those communities where the the kids decide to start thinking differently and doing differently, they get kicked out. There's whole communities. Um, I know, like in St. George, it's called lost boys and lost girls. And that's where the kids who have been kicked out or left the polygamist group, that's where they go to sort of heal and be helped. And when you have big families like that, it might be hard to let, you know, kids would get their own way very much less than say there's one or two kids in a family. Yeah, that's true. But, and maybe that's, that could be a healthy balance though, because if there's only one or two kids, they would all get their way a lot more. In a larger family, it's like you, you do let the kids try to get their way sometimes, but then they also have to be thinking about everybody else too. We each have several children. I occasionally feel guilty about it just because the kids, I feel like don't get as much attention as I think maybe they deserve. But then at the same time, it's like, but wait, this is really healthy for them. You can't spoil that many kids. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you can't. And they learn that the world does not revolve around them. But yeah, I think that they also will see that we're making huge efforts to spend one-on-one time with them and right. and their siblings. Hopefully yeah. that's a, I mean, I may be just like hoping that I'm doing it right. I don't know. But um, <laughs> so hopefully it all turns out well. But yeah. yeah, so just an interesting thought. So Mary does go back out to the garden and she and, and Dickon, they're playing with his little animals and he just becomes very, a little more passionate about getting Colin out there. He says, you know, look at all the, this beauty and all these wonderful smells. And he's like, and that poor lad lying shut, shut up and seeing so little that he gets to thinking of things it sets him screaming. Like, he needs to get out more, you know? And he says, we must get him out here. We must get him watching and listening and sniffing up the air and getting him, sorry, get him just soaked through with sunshine. We must not lose no time about it. So there's my awesome Yorkshire accent, but it's hard to read. And it's really hard to read. But basically he's like, for him to heal, he's got to get out here and he's got to experience this. So Mary just, she goes back in. I mean, she spent some time out there with Dickon, but then she goes back in and talks to Colin and is telling him about the garden. And then she starts talking to him kind of about him. And this is really interesting because we kind of get to see their emotions and their feelings a little bit. Because, so Mary says, I don't feel as sour as I used to before I knew the Robin and Dickon. Colin says, did you feel as if you hated people? Yes, answered Mary without any affectation. She's like, yeah, I did. I should have detested you if I had seen you before I saw the Robin and Dickon. So she's acknowledging that the Robin and nature and being outside and meeting Dickon, meeting this beautiful person has changed her and allowed her to become a much more empathetic human being to her. And so we talked about the buildup and really like for her, all that had to happen before she met Colin or else they would have just killed each other. It would have went bad. South, it would have gone south very quickly. And Colin admits that he thinks that Dickon is a little bit like an angel. And, and she says, if an angel did come to Yorkshire and live on the moor, if there was a Yorkshire angel, 
I believe he'd understand the green things and know how to make them grow. And he would know how to talk to the wild creatures as Dickon does. And they'd know he was friends for sure. So again, (laughs) they refer to him as an angel. I call him a wood sprite or a fairy, but he is this angelic. Like otherworldly. Otherworldly. Totally. Yeah. That is there to like heal her. I don't know. Yeah. Along her. Then in turn, they both help Colin. Absolutely. And and he's this completely unselfish, amazing creature. I've read before about how in, in the greatest books, there's always a Christ figure. The more I've read and studied this, I'm like, oh, well, that's Dickon. You know, <laughs> he gets things out of these relationships. He does, but it's not about him at all. It's really about him helping and strengthening and rescuing everyone around him. Yeah. Giving animals, to even the animals and the earth and the people. Yeah. Interesting. I'll have to look um, at that in all of the... Yeah, really- in the really good books, you look for the, the Christ figure. So, and then the chapter just ends with a little surprise that Mary has for Colin. And the first one is she tells him that Dickon is actually going to come to the manor and, and see Colin. And Colin is really excited. But then the biggest and best surprise of all is she reveals that she actually did find the key and she has been into the garden and... She wants to take Colin. I think that's probably a good place for us to. Yeah. Pause. We have a lot to look forward to than reading about him being introduced to the garden. And now we have a little bit of anticipation and some build up because which we've talked about before, kind of the whole book is this slow build, right? And so in the next couple of chapters, when we start next time, Colin will finally get to enter the garden. So I'm really excited about that. He just found out about the key. So, okay. So next week we'll pick up with chapter 19, right? Yep. All right. So Amity, what have you been reading this week? So this week I finished Tess of the Durbervilles and I loved it. And I have to tell a quick little story about my finishing it because it's getting really, really cold here and really dark in the morning. So I've been running on the treadmill at the gym for my morning run which can be really long and tedious. But so just yesterday morning, I, I had like an hour long run and I thought I'll just listen to Tess for like 20 minutes and then I'll listen to music or something. But instead I listened to it for the remainder of the book <laughs> and for my entire run for like an hour because it was the rest of the book. I'm running on the treadmill and I'm just like sobbing. <laughs> I'm like probably all these people at the gym think I'm a complete nut and I don't even care. So anyways, I really loved it. I thought it was just amazingly written, evoked so much emotion. And to me, it was such an important statement by Thomas Hardy on just how unfair society and thought processes have been towards women and and how important for it to come from an extremely intelligent and well-respected man. And he did catch a lot of flack for it at the time, but you know, he didn't withdraw it. He didn't delete his book because it was such an important thing to, to write and have out there and for society to be like, oh yeah, we've got a lot of issues. I know that he had some issues with religion, I believe. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit more as we talk about the matting crowd more far from the matting crowd more. He did have some issues with established religion. I do believe he wholeheartedly believed in God. I think that just the religions that surrounded him, he had an issue with them. And that really comes out in the book to me, I think. I think that's interesting that did he write a lot about women? I mean, you know, far from that in crowd is like 
about women's traditional roles back then. Mm-hmm. Is that a theme? Have you have you read other stuff by him? So I've read Return of the Native, Eustacia Vi, which is also another very strong hero. And but it's been so many years. I like off yeah. the top of my head, I can't can't tell you tons about it. Yeah, it is really interesting that he really does explore that topic and sort of society's perceptions of women. So I I love it. I think it's amazing. Yeah, I can just so. imagine people looking at you going, "What is she listening to?" <laughs> I'm <laughs> listening to. They would never guess. <laughs> I know, I know. Exactly. So, and I don't, I don't know that anyone really even noticed that I was crying on the treadmill, but, but I mean, you like running for me, running is torture. So, (laughs) but like, does it help your brain go somewhere else? Forget about what you're doing. Yes. Especially because a lot of my running does have to be sort of like, and as I build up, like a lot of it is sort of an easy pace. I have a couple days a week that are like super, super, super hard. So a lot of it is just easy pace, a lot of miles, a lot of time. So that's what yesterday was. So I really do have to have like sort of a form of escapism or else it just, <laughs> especially on the treadmill, it can go on forever. So it totally helped me. I wouldn't be able to listen to it while I was doing a hard like tempo run or speed workout that would not be helpful, but for the yeah. long, slow miles as you're putting in miles. Yeah. I, that's not something I could do. <laughs> I can walk. That's pretty good for me. I mentioned last week that I was going to read the gift of imperfection by Brene Brown this week. And so for our book club, we discussed it last night and I really liked it. I don't typically read a lot of nonfiction. I do some, but not a ton. So this is different for me. The main idea of it is that there's three gifts that come with acknowledging our imperfection. With these gifts, she teaches us how to feel worthy to live. She calls a wholehearted life. This is how she describes wholehearted living. She says, engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. It means cultivating the courage, compassion, and connection. Those are the three gifts to wake up in the morning and think no matter what gets done and how much is left undone, I am enough. It's going to bed at night thinking, yes, I'm imperfect and vulnerable and sometimes afraid, but that doesn't change the truth that I'm also brave and worthy of love and belonging. So I loved it. No matter what we do, we're enough. So the three gifts were courage, which means speaking our like heart and mind and being honest and open about who we are instead of trying to hide. She says, we practice courage by owning our story our own story and experience. And then the second thing, second gift was compassion. And she said that we don't normally tend to give compassion, like it's not natural. And instead, when we're like embarrassed or something traumatic happens, we want to defend ourselves and look for somebody to blame or judge. So absolutely. Yeah. When others are in pain and we need to avoid the need to fix it and just be there for them and admit, like I've been there before too. Yeah. I had never thought about that, that it's compassion is kind of unnatural. We have to work for it. And then the last one is connection. And I love this. So being seen, heard, and valued is what connection is. The problem we have now is social media. So we get on social media and it actually disconnects us because we're seeing what everybody else wants us to see. And then we're feeling outside of it because we don't measure up, you know, it's like doing the opposite of connection. Even though some people think we're more connected because we have social media, it's actually less. And we need to connect with the people that are around us, our loved ones. So anyways, I just, I was real good. I've listened to Brene Brown a lot. Love everything I've listened to. And I need to just 
grab some of her books and read them. I think that'd be really wonderful. But a thought that I had too was when you're talking about compassion, I think that one way we can help our children learn compassion is actually by reading lots and lots of books to them. <laughs> because I think it opens up the world in a way that they wouldn't necessarily have otherwise because they don't necessarily come into contact with people of from every different kind of background. But in books, you can in a way, and you can have these really wonderful discussions and get those seeds planted in their brain and realizing that there's so much outside of themselves. Yeah. Not only do books like take us to places and times, but like give us experiences with different kinds of people that wouldn't normally have those experiences with. Yeah. And I really think that readers are the most compassionate people. Yeah. I don't know. I just noticed that trend. I think that you're right. Yeah. Cause another they... good reason to make, to read to your children a lot. <laughs> yes. We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.